Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 69th episode, Nice, I'll be talking to Liz Marie Furla, music journalist, critic, and blogger, about some of the music of her childhood. Along the way, we discussed the short but powerful musical career of David Duchovny, the rise and fall of the Britannia Music Club, and the second coming of the British Invasion, thanks to a little show called Biker Grove. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail, and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake. <laughs> My name is Liz Verla. I am a blogger, I'm a music writer, an occasional radio personality who normally gets called on to Scottish national radio stations to talk about Taylor Swift. I've been blogging for, I think that the thing that maybe makes me unique in internet terms is that I've been blogging since the year that the word blog was invented, which apparently was 1999, which is when I set up my first blog. So my existing place is, I think, 12 years old, because I moved around a lot, but the one that, the website that I have now is 12 years old. So if it's a 12-year-old website, I presume that at some spot there's a little gif of a tiny stick man digging a hole and it says under construction, lots of auto-playing music, and I'm just thinking of what other annoying GeoCities things Oh, yes, the old GeoCities sites. I I had a couple of those. They were normally X-Files fan sites. That I built oh, when I bless. first when I first got an internet connection. That was what I sat and did in the library in at university. I sometimes joke that the reason I didn't get as good a degree as I could have done was because I spent most of my university years in the computer labs. I didn't have an internet connection at home back in those days, setting mm. up my first blog. But given that how I make my living these days is writing about music and a lot of that writing on the internet, I figure it was as important a part of my education as my actual degree was. Let's call it a secret test of character. You were yes. doing the thing that was really important as opposed to the distracting stuff that you know just got in the way, like, you know learning and education and such yeah yeah that's overrated (laughs) i feel you there when it comes to having a website for a very specific purpose i remember the first ever website that i built was on a site called net firms which was a kind of free website service kind of like geocities and it was essentially hosting photos for people's profile pictures on a forum that I was a member of. And I would meticulously go through and people would request, oh, do you have from this movie or a picture of this thing? And I would go through and use my Microsoft picture at 2001 and get it to the particular resolution and size and just have pages and pages of these tiny like postage stamp sized pictures. so that people could link to them and use them as their profile photos. And then I forgot to renew it and it all went away and like half the people on the site suddenly had blank broken JPEGs as profile pictures and they were really mad at me. These kids with their Facebook gift libraries, honestly, they don't know they're born. 
It's one of those situations where I had to tell someone the other day when they were getting annoyed about their new iPhone, and it was their iPad, that was it. They, and the latest iOS changed, changed the keyboard, so it's got different shortcuts for punctuation and things. And I said, hey, hey, once upon a time, you couldn't even have third-party apps on your iPhone. iPhones couldn't <laughs> do cut and paste. And he's like, what? I'm like, yeah. Yeah, it was a big deal when suddenly there was an update. And I remember if you had an iPod Touch, you had to pay for it, where you could do copy and paste. Yes! And then it was a big thing when suddenly, oh, you can get third-party apps. And then none of them worked because no one knew how to code in HTML5. And I realized as I said that, I'm like, I basically have just drawn myself a sweater vest and carpet slippers and a pipe and talk about how, uh, oh, you know, you can't get real ale in pubs anymore. Yeah. And things like that. <laughs> get off my lawn with your newfangled technology, children. <laughs> <laughs> These goddamn whippersnappers. All right, let's, let's start from the beginning. Whereabouts did you grow up? So I grew up in a town called Johnson, just outside of Glasgow. I was born in Paisley, which is the biggest town in Scotland and which is currently up for UK City of Culture 2021, which is quite exciting. So they've got some time then. Yeah. They're getting a run-up to it, I suppose. Yeah, Paisley's one of these. It's kind of like a town that history forgot because it is Glasgow's like Scotland's biggest city and Paisley kind of bleeds into Glasgow and Johnson, where, where I grew up, bleeds into Paisley. So you've got this town that's always forgotten because people were trying to leave it to go to Glasgow but it's one of those places that has all kinds of a hidden creative side I mean Jerry Rafferty was from Paisley oh wow Paolo Nutini is from Paisley I don't know if, if he's made it as far as Australia David Tennant who played Doctor Who is from Paisley now you have my attention <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sure, Steeler's Wheel is one thing, but a former Doctor Who. Yeah. <laughs> that'll get my attention. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, and then obviously the current, well, current for the next six weeks or something, Dr. Peter Capaldi is from Glasgow. So, you know, we've actually, it's not just David Tennant that's from Paisley, Stephen Moffat's from Paisley as well. I forgot about that. Ah. So we have lots of Doctor Who connections in our little town. I was about to say, so you're to blame. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, it's all us. I'm just going to wait for this plane to go over. Can you hear that? I can, yeah. <laughs> well, I grew up in a flight path, actually. So that's getting back to the topic. The house that I grew up in was under the approach of the planes into Glasgow Airport. Did you get the shaking shelves or was it far enough away that it was just like just a constant roar? It was far enough away that, yeah, it was more just the roar. But it means that I can't sleep without some kind of white noise. So mm -hmm. I now live in the east end of Glasgow, which is the opposite end of the city from where the airport is. But I need to have a fan on to sleep because I need that white noise to be able to get to sleep because I'm so used to it. With our new baby, we got recommended a white noise machine and it's great. Except for I realized it works on me too. So I, <laughs> I drop off like I've been shot with a tranquilizer dart, which uh, drives my partner nuts to no end when she's sitting there and the baby's asleep and I'm asleep. And she's <laughs> going, what am I supposed to do? I blame the fact that my father used to put me to sleep by putting me in the car and driving around the block. Ah, same sort so of idea. Vibrations and white noise is just like instant tranquilizer to me. Also responsible for me falling asleep on school buses when I was in <laughs> high school and getting lots of, you know, various sandwiches thrown at me or getting my face smushed against a window or whatever. Yeah, I was going to say stuff drawn on your face, but maybe <laughs> if, if you were under supervision, you probably got away with it. Luckily, I was never that sound of a sleeper. <laughs> All right, so growing up in Johnson, what sort of kid were you? Quiet, bookish. I pretty much stuck in at school and then went home and read books, and that was pretty much all I did. 
And what sort of things were you reading? What was getting your attention? It was basically anything I could get my hands on. I was the kind of kid that read the back of cereal packets over breakfast, you know. <laughs> my mum used to have to tell me to stop and get my attention so that I could be sociable at mealtimes. <laughs> I taught myself to read when I was three years old. It was little paperback books that were based on cartoon characters. I think it was things like My Little Pony and the Care Bears and the Glowworms. But they weren't, you know, they weren't picture books. They had actual words in them and um, we were staying with my aunt and uncle while our, the flat that we lived in at the time was getting renovated and my uncle came out one day and saw me in the garden with this book and got all excited and went Anne Marie to my mum she's reading after that I never looked back I read the Chronicles of Narnia I read any classics I could get my hands on you know I was reading Dickens when I was seven and eight I remember my mum was a teacher when I was a little bit older I'd gone on to high school she actually taught in the school the first school I went to the primary school that I went to and she came home one day she had taken on this primary four class so this is kids about seven or eight and she was complaining Mm -hmm. about these complicated books that were in the classroom library they were all about mostly about horses I was I I loved horses (laughs) even though I'd never I'd never met a horse at that point in my life but I loved reading books about horses so she came in she said Mm -hmm. you know all all these books and you know seven-year-olds can't read those books and I just sort of looked really embarrassed and I was like actually um I picked those for that classroom <laughs> so that I mean that was, that was pretty much what I did it drives my husband absolutely crazy that I never saw any of the films that were a big deal when we were growing up you know basically any sort of 80s 90s cinema I've got this void in my cultural education you know sometimes he'll he'll make me watch the the films that he loved growing up things like Raiders of the Lost Ark or Blade Runner and I'll just look bored because to me they seem really dated because I wasn't there at the time to enjoy (laughs) them so I'll pretty much just sit there and make sarcastic comments about oh yeah Harrison Ford is a replicant (laughs) sort of stuff and just wind him up because it's just it's just something I completely missed out on I was going into my own wee world instead reading books. Now you mentioned the Chronicles of Narnia earlier this has been a perennial question on this show but in what order did you read them did you go Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe first and from there or did you go in the chronological order I went in the chronological order because for Christmas when I was seven my mum always got us a book in our Christmas stocking and she had bought me The Magician's Nephew so that was where I started and then I read them all in order with the exception of The Horse and His Boy which I still haven't read But it's fine because isn't that one, it's like sort of a story within a story rather than about the actual characters of Narnia. Yeah, it's sort of a little side story that happened kind of during the time skip of Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe when all the Pevensey children are kings and queens. So yeah, it's just this little thing and at the end he bumps into them in their kind of royalty and then goes on. So it's honestly, it's the most skippable of them. But I'm really glad to hear you say that you read The Magician's Nephew first because I did the same because my grade school library had a box set that was ordered in that way. And it just made sense. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't even question it. I just read it that way. And then moved, as happened to me literally every year when I was a kid, went to a new school and suddenly they're in the wrong order and everyone's reading them in the wrong order and are treating me really weird and saying, what are you doing? What you're doing is wrong. And I'm like, no, no, it's right. There was a box (laughs) and everything. So I'm very glad to hear that. Yes. Yeah, it makes more sense that way to me. Yeah, it does. And I have, you know, I have a huge soft spot for The Magician's Nephew. Probably because it was the first one that I ever read, but I just I just like the story better. The characters 
of the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, they don't really speak to me in the same way. I mean, I don't I don't really remember a huge amount about the books because, you know, we're almost, oh God, it's almost 30 years ago that I read them. <laughs> but yeah, I do remember feeling most strongly, having a more strong affinity with The Magician's Nephew than, you know, than Lucy and Susan and all of them. Yeah, I think we're getting to the age where you can start to look at things and go, oh God, that was X number of years ago because lending your time is a hell of a drug. I was saying to someone yesterday, I was watching a wrestling pay-per-view, going onto Twitter and having a complaint about a reused storyline or how I didn't feel someone was being used correctly. And a friend came back and they're like, oh, well, you know, maybe it's because I'm a a new fan. I'm not tired of that yet. And I went, oh, well, I've been watching for, and then I had to do some frantic mental calculation. And I went, Jesus Christ, I've been watching wrestling for 27 years. It's terrifying, isn't it? And the guy who's a friend of mine, Chris Rowling, said, I'm 25, Lucas. And I'm just like, shut up. Just, <laughs> just don't. <laughs> so, yeah, it's one of those things where you go, okay, well, even like I've been watching Arrested Development from the start because with a baby in the house, you have a lot of downtime to kind of sit still and do things mm. with a baby on you. And so I realized that like, oh, I, I'm like, I gave it a try a few years ago. And then I did the math and I went, I gave it a try in 2005. Oh. <laughs> went back. Like, that was literally 12 years ago. Maybe it's time for another shot. I think the fact that there's this culture of nostalgia in music and movies and TV franchises, which I suspect is to do with the fact that the people our age are now in the position where they're making all the decisions. So my favourite TV show when I was growing up was The X-Files, and obviously that's a show that has been in a much maligned reboot mode. You know, when you're seeing the characters now and... Obviously, somebody like David Duchovny certainly does look ravaged by time. Gillian Anderson doesn't age, <laughs> but but David Duchovny, well, yeah, he, um, you know, you you watch him and you think he's he's definitely aged, and then again, you do the maths. Yes, he's sixty. Of course, he's aged. <laughs> I used to have his posters on my bedroom wall. <laughs> Whereas Gillian Anderson remains perfect. Oh yeah, Gillian Anderson yeah. is the queen. She's like one of those knives where the more you use it, the sharper it gets, and <laughs> the more deadly. <laughs> That's a great way of looking huh. at it. Whereas David Duchovny was, uh, yeah, sealed too close to the turning of the wheel and he was ravaged by the ages. <laughs> Have you heard his album? Oh, um, I'm sorry. Uh, Did you miss this? Li- listeners, I'm going to stop the entire podcast. David Duchovny has an album? <laughs> <laughs> David Duchovny, yes, brought out an album. Was it last year? Was it the year before? And as part of my music journalism work, I got paid to go and see my childhood idol in concert and it was as bad as as you would imagine that it would be. It's the sort of thing that if you didn't have clout, then it would never have gotten made. It's very, very dad rock. And there's a song and I wish... I was about to say, I'm going to need you to describe the exact caliber of dad rock we're talking are we talking like sen- sensitive like i need to look up the name of this song you're gonna have to track down after this podcast i'm gonna have to yeah it's called positively madison avenue oh jesus and it's basically a song in which he complains about bob dylan selling out because his songs are on <laughs> tv adverts now <laughs> and i'm like oh david Duchovny, no i'm like <laughs> Mate, no one would be coming to hear you sing this song about somebody selling out if you were not that guy off the X-Files. Especially not Bob Dylan. I know. (laughs) The hottest take of 1978. (laughs) (laughs) 
It was an experience. He was also selling £150 tickets for this this concert where, you know, you could have a meet and greet with him. He's actually, he remains the member of the main X-Files cast that I haven't met and I don't think I'd want to know. It's probably for the best. Yeah. (laughs) Just go to him and, hey man, (laughs) ever since Jimmy went electric, it's all gone downhill. Am I right? (laughs) And he's like, preach, and gives you a little high five and off you go. Oh, God. Oh, see, I, I have a quiet soft spot for actors who become musicians. I like the ones that do it kind of on the down low. And it's just like, this is a thing I do for fun. I don't really care. Like Kevin Bacon's on that list. Mm. Like him and his brother have like, just like a bar band. And they go and have fun and do that. But then you've got someone like Hugh Laurie, who's just like multi-talented. And like put together a band full of actors called Band From TV, which I think is great. That's fantastic. And they do just like benefit concerts and none of them need the money. So it all goes to charity. Him on the piano and God, who was it? There was one guy from Alias who like played something else. And it's just like, yeah. That's fun. Do that. But then you get stuff like Dogstar, which is Keanu Reeves' band. Yeah. Or, God help us, 30 Seconds to Mars. What, there was one that I saw at a festival in the summer, and I can't remember whose band it was. But even then, I'm pretty sure it was like some British soap actor or something who's now decided to reinvent himself as a serious <laughs> musician. Paddy Considine. Ah, that's it. I thought you were going to say Ross Kemp and it was going to ruin my day. <laughs> you know what? I would pay to see that. It was Paddy Considine's band. <laughs> one of the most interesting things that has turned up in my inbox this year has been the country album by Steve Martin and the Steep Canyon Rangers. Oh, yes. Which is actually pretty good. <laughs> I, I can't keep a straight face when I'm no, listening to it. To, uh, that's the thing. I mean, it's one of those ones where, like, he actually won a Grammy for his Bluegrass album. I forget what the speech was, but he said something to the effect of, and thank you for rewarding me just for the caliber of the music. I'm sure that's only what it is. <laughs> It's not the fact that I'm Steve Martin. But I mean, Steve Martin's a really interesting person. Like, I read his book, Born Standing Up, which is all about him, like, going from being a magician to being a stand-up comedian. Anytime you see Steve Martin in a terrible film, like, you know, what was it? Oh, crap, I've forgotten even the names. The one with Queen Latifah or any of those ones. Barbershop. He's basically... Was he in Barbershop? Was it Barbershop? No, that's, that's, not what, that's not what I'm thinking of. But I'm sure there was yeah, something... But... Oh, no, yeah, I don't know. Like I said, rubbish with films. Yeah, exactly. So... He's in this terrible film. The reason he's done that is to buy, like, a Rothko or something. some Because he's a huge modern art collector. Yeah. And so anytime he's done a terrible film, it's because, oh, I want to buy that piece and I don't have the money just now. So I'm going to go do a terrible film, get a giant paycheck, and buy something nice for my wall. You have to respect that. Yeah, the open commercialism of, of that. It's like when you ask Warren Ellis, it's like, oh, you know, this year I wrote another Iron Man story. And with that proceeds, I bought my daughter a pony. <laughs> And in the letters column, we'll post a picture of his daughter next to a pony. And he's like, here, this is why. Money, dear boy. Yes. We were talking about something else before we got sidetracked into celebrity music. Do you know what? I I have a feeling that most of this conversation is going to be us getting sidetracked. And I had a feeling before you even called that that was going to happen. I just got that impression just from your online persona. (laughs) (laughs) There are shows that stay on track and there are shows that kind of stick around the topic. And then there's the math of you. So... (laughs) (laughs) So initially when we set up the show, you said you wanted to talk specifically about the music of your childhood in that you were kind of shunted into a genre of music that was not of your choosing. And from there, it kind of influenced what you could do. But before we do, you did mention something that I wanted to kind of pick on. You see, kids, ask your parents about how there was once upon a time a mail order service where you could get a dozen CDs for a penny. Yes! (laughs) 
and you would get these pamphlets dropped in, into your mailbox and you would then take off all of these CDs that you wanted and mail them a physical penny and they would send you back these CDs. But what they didn't tell you is that Columbia House or all these other organizations would then sign you up for a subscription service and you would have to buy a certain number of albums for in a certain number of years. But of course, no one did that. Everyone just got the first lot, except my mother. <laughs> my mother was the one honest person. She subscribed to Columbia House for literally 16 years. Wow. Buying all her music that way. And so every summer we'd go there and we'd get a stack of CDs. I got Montel Jordan that way. I got the Presidents of the United States of America self-titled album that way. I got a whole bunch of very important music in the mid-90s that way. But I'd like to hear about your experience with mail-order CD clubs. <laughs> so my dad's was fairly similar to your... Well... I say fairly similar, but my dad is a great one for a bargain, which <laughs> in my mid-30s has turned into, every time I go and see my dad, I leave with a carrier bag full of random cuts of meat that he's pulled out of his freezer. <laughs> he likes to go to the supermarket just before closing time when all of the meat that's going to go out of date has been reduced and get a really great bargain. And even more than getting a great bargain... He likes to tell you about the great bargains he's got. <laughs> so the latest one, he had gone to Tesco or one of the big supermarket chains and he had got three packs of, it was all their barbecue meat for the summer. Obviously we're getting into winter now so they're selling it all off cheap. It was basically like kebab sticks with chicken and chorizo mm -hmm. and veg and stuff on them. Normally they would sell for three for ten pounds but these were all reduced to a pound and he mm -hmm. bought three of them and whatever it was they'd done normally when you buy things that are reduced it should take them out of the offer and what would have been the automatic offer won't get deducted from your bill but no it still did so he actually got an extra four pound off his shop and buying these three punnets of meat that were a pound each but yes so i suspect my dad's experience with the britannia music club which was the british version of columbia house i think he was the kind of person that would sign up for the bundle of CDs for a penny and then cancel it and then sign up again, <laughs> you know, once a safe period of time had passed. Basically to imply that a random other person had moved into the house and had similar taste in music. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and just happened to have a very, very rare Italian surname. But he, he somehow got away with it. And so most of the music of my childhood was music that he had got in this huge collection of CDs that he had but what he did was he would make mixtapes from the CDs we never listened to full albums it was always like these tapes that he had culled particular tracks from and he would play them in the car because he only had a cassette player in the car so when we were driving around we would always get a selection of songs it was things like Losing My Religion by R.E.M. was on there so that was one of the first songs I ever learned to sing along to. My brother and I came up with harmonies for it. And uh -huh. when we were a bit older, my brother was learning to play guitar. That was one of the songs that he played and we'd do the harmonies. And then there was another one. There was a song off a Mike Oldfield album. And you know, Mike Oldfield's kind of famous for, for tubular bells and instrumental stuff. If I say tubular bells, yeah. But there's one that has lyrics and it's something like, 
carried away by a moonlight shadow or something like that and this was my oh, little yes. sister's favorite song and when it came on in the tape that was always the one that she would sing along to and she's probably forgotten that it even existed now but <laughs> I, i'm gonna have to bring that up next time i speak to her those were among the first songs i ever listened to but the first album that i ever sort of properly listened to when i was seven years old i got given cassette Walkman for my birthday and I think my parents realised that they were giving me this but I didn't have anything to play in it so before (laughs) this gift was handed over to me I think my dad ran up the stairs and sort of ransacked in the drawers in the wardrobe to see what he could find and pulled out the first cassette tape which was the best of Boney M and so for the first (laughs) for about a year of my life this was the one tape that I had this was the one tape that I listened to I am now someone who makes part of her living from having opinions about music but for a good year of my life all I listened to was Rai Rai Rasputin (laughs) Russia's greatest love machine I can't even give the next line. It's too good. I would never voluntarily listen to these songs now in my adulthood, but I bet you if one of them came on in a pub or whatever, I would know every single word. I could just see you having a, like a, you know a heated conversation with someone, and then suddenly you just be like, "Stop, <laughs> Boney M is on. Don't you say anything." <laughs> Although, just to interrupt, I, I just looked it up because I wanted to be sure. Did you know the singer on Michael Field's Moonlight Shadow is Maggie Riley, who was from Glasgow? Really? Yes. I did not know that. There you go. She did on Family Man, Moonlight Shadow, and Foreign Affair. <laughs> so it all comes full circle. If that ever ends up in a pub quiz, I will thank you. Oh, you're going to knock that out of the park. Absolutely. <laughs> just, just, just trust me. I know this. <laughs> But albums that are played in the car, I I don't know what it is. For people of a certain age, tapes played in the car have a way of penetrating your brain in a way that other music seldom does. Like, I know that when I was gone car trips with my mom, we would take turns. It was a very diplomatic way of doing things that each of us, my sister, my mother, and me, would each get a turn to pick a tape. And my mother's tapes were Tori Amos and McGarrickles and Lorena McKinnett and Mary Chapin Carpenter. And so I know all those songs still. I can sing along to the entirety of Tori Amos's Little Earthquakes, which is still a good album. I can do that, but not for the same reason. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my sister would play TLC and she would play uh, Salt and Pepper and stuff like that. And I was a little, you know, wannabe punk. So I would play things like Green Day and stuff. Uh, But for some reason, all of that music, whether or not I still hear it, it'll come on and I'll know it and I'll know the turn in that song I'll know when the change happens and so I get this this weird thing with mixtapes and I've talked about it previously on the show where you'll listen to a like a song that you had on a tape and every once in a while you'll remember that oh the CD skipped as I was recording it so there's a little jump in the middle of that chorus and it won't be there but you'll expect it every time you hear that song yes because that was the tape you listened to or it'll you expect it to cut off halfway at the end of a side or you'll expect the next track to be the next track that was on your mix rather than the next track that was on the album exactly I just had a moment like that before you called actually so I was listening to one of my favorite bands is the Weakerlands and I was listening to Mm -hmm. it's a Canadian band I was listening to the Reconstruction Site album and I've got a playlist on my iPod it's the track listing from a John K. Sampson show that I went to when I saw him live and that's kind of become like the definitive order in my head so listening to the album tracks I was like no that's not oh no it is meant to come next this is just my my warped memory and then I guess the other part of that as well is that the version of the song you hear first will always be the definitive version of the song to you even if it's a cover version 
or a remix or something. Yeah, the the only exception to that rule being the dance remix of Tori Amos's Professional Widow, which was in the charts when I was growing up. <laughs> yeah, I was going to mention the Weaker Thans, and they're one of those bands that I really like, but I rarely listen to because my friend Annie recommended two songs from the point of view of a cat, and they're heartbreaking. And so I decided that after a few listens, I'm like, this will derail my whole day if I listen to this. Yeah, particularly, well, it gets worse. Oh, so <laughs> so the John Case a Samson solo album from last year has a song called, so for the benefit of listeners, the, the two songs that, that Lucas is talking about are called Plea from a Cat Named Vertuti and then Vertuti the Cat Explains Her Departure, which you will oh. not be able to listen to without breaking down. Oh, it's the worst. So when I saw the track listing for this album had a track on it called Vertuti at Rest and I was like, oh my God, he's killing off the cats. But it is, it's a beautiful song and, you know, it's, it's funny that you're mentioning this this suite of songs. So the soul album that came out last year, Winter Wait, the back of the vinyl is an etching of the cat, of Vertuti the cat, with a little banner underneath that says, Vivat Vertuti, so long live Vertuti. And I kind of see her as a metaphor for mental illness and, and overcoming depression. And I think if you listen to the lyrics of the songs, that's a very obvious subtext. So I actually got this etching from the back of the vinyl as a tattoo. Oh, that's lovely. So I have it just under my collarbone. I have a tattoo of Vertuti the cat with the banner Vivat Vertuti. So it's, it is a kind of mental health thing, but also a sign of my weaker lands fandom. <laughs> I've just looked it up and wow, that's really cool. <laughs> well, the thing is about, this is very pointed at the moment because I was at the shops yesterday and was you know, kind of browsing in your JB Hi-Fi and looking at the DVDs and stuff, even though I have recently called my DVD collection to make more room. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, they're having a sale on Universal Monster movies because of Halloween. Maybe I'll get a couple of those. And, and I saw that there was a two for 20 offer and the Iron Giant was in there. And again, you mentioned your film bona fides are not as up to date as they can, but it's an animated film by Brad Bird who eventually would make The Incredibles. And it's about a little boy in 1957 who meets a robot from space who becomes his friend. And it's also incredibly heartbreaking and beautiful. And I saw this and I'm like, I have a a son now. He needs to see this, so I need to buy this. It's going to break his heart. Even though (laughs) that kid could probably not pick me out of a lineup, let alone understand. (laughs) (laughs) And and when when he's a little bit older... It'll break his heart. Yeah, absolutely. It's based on a book, actually. It's a Ted Hughes book. There you go, yeah. And I've read that. I've not seen the film, but I've read the book. The film's fantastic and holds up because all the animation is just like stunning and beautiful and well done. But here's the thing. Again, I have not watched that movie in more than 10 years, more than a decade. And someone on Twitter was talking about it and like posted a GIF of one of the moments and I got teary at work. (laughs) So trust me when I say this movie wrecked me. Mm. Like for the last 35 minutes, I had tears streaming down my face and I was making these awful gulping noises. My partner who had never seen this movie before and I said, it's a good movie, we need to watch this. And she kept looking over and asking if I was okay. And then finally just kind of patted me on the head and said, you're a hot mess, babe. Just just take it easy. <laughs> and I'm like, this is so important. It's, blows nose, a masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's something, it's like, 
I never used to cry at movies, but I mean, I'm 35 goddamn years old. I can accept that the Iron Giant is going to tear me up when I watch it. Yeah. But yeah, if you can, go out of your way to see it. It's it's really good and definitely holds up. I will do. And I mean, I'm making it sound like it's it's like an emotionally exhausting thing. It's also a really funny movie and it's, you know, well written and it's got a good voice cast. It's got, God, I've lost his name. The guy who played Shooter McGavin and Happy Gilmore. And it's got the dad from Frasier. It's got Harry Connick Jr. as a beatnik, which is great. Wow. It's a good thing. Everyone go watch The Iron Giant and you cry with me <laughs> <laughs> anyway we were coming back to you were talking about the weaker thens so what were some of the other bands that were on that list the famed dad list oh who else was on there leonard cohen was on there a bit of springsteen but none of the good stuff <laughs> bit of dylan but none of the good stuff i think those albums and or those songs that were on the mixtapes they were almost like jumping off points they were the starting points you know like you would hear whatever my dad's favorite leonard cohen song is bird on a wire so you would go oh. from that and delve into the back catalog nancy griffith was on there she's an american country singer and she was probably like the first musician that i was properly a fan of and my dad and I even went to see her when I was maybe like 13, 14. My dad took me to see Nancy Griffith playing in Glasgow Royal Concert Hall which is this really, it's like a venue that is built for music. It's not somewhere where I would go now to see rock bands but its acoustics are amazing and I remember just feeling so grown up being out with my dad (laughs) and you know he'd he'd go up to the bar and he had a beer and I had a coke and it was just like you know this like adult moment you know it's like a a kind of formative moment of my life before I became someone who would end up going to see live music like two nights a week sort of thing. It's something that I that I was trying to explain to some Australians recently because Australian pubs are very family friendly with the exception of like nightclubs and stuff you can bring someone who's underage to a pub to have food or the parents want to have a drink and stuff. Whereas in Canada, if a place served alcohol and was not a restaurant, you were not allowed in if you were under 18. So I had never set foot in a bar until I was about 16. And a friend's mom who worked there had like hired us to sweep out the parking lot. And when we went in to get our money, it was the first time I had stepped into a bar. And I'm like, wow. Is this what it's like? (laughs) And of course the floors were sticky and it was awful and there were poker machines. And so it was like, wow, this sucks. (laughs) Maybe I don't want to be here. Of course I did a little later, but it was... So yeah, I could definitely see that kind of stepping into that adult space and being like, I shouldn't be here, but I am. Yeah. And so that was your first concert. And I think as a first concert, that's a pretty good one. (laughs) You have good good credibility there. You know, it would be be a, a great one to be my first concert. Except... Except it wasn't actually. Uh-oh. What was the first one? My first actual concert. And I wonder if this will have any resonance at all for a Canadian-Australian. If an English TV show called Baker Grove ever ends up on your radar. I don't think it did. Tell me about Baker Grove. So Baker Grove was set in a children's home in Newcastle. And it just sort of followed these kids and their friendships and relationships and whatever. But there were two guys in it who the characters they played were called PJ and Duncan. And they released, they actually released three pop albums, which contains <laughs> such classic songs as Let's Get Ready to Rumble, spelled R H U M B L E. Oh boy. With the lyric, Watch us wreck the mic, watch us wreck the mic, watch us wreck the mic, psych. 
<laughs> now, the guys who played these two TV characters, they're quite famous in British public life now because they grew up to become a television presenting duo known as Ant and Dec. <gasps> oh, I know of Ant and Yes! Dec. <laughs> Former guest of the show, Rosie Fletcher, is now jumping up and down and going, yes, Ant and Dec. <laughs> so I was in love with Dec and his the character he played was Duncan and he was like the more kind of pop singery of the duo and Ant or PJ was the really cheesy very white very english rapper also from a scale of one to geordie shore how geordie was this well i've never seen geordie shore okay well consider that to be a 10 (laughs) an angry drunken 10 then i would say probably a six or a seven i mean you could understand them and it could probably have been set in any predominantly working class british city but you know they had the accents but yeah so they had this terrible pop album and my first concert was going to see them at the big Glasgow pop venue of those days, which is like a big kind of exhibition hall. It was like going to concerts in an aircraft hangar. It was it was an experience. I mean, I loved it then. I remember, and this probably happened the gigs you went to growing up as well. You know, you had the official merch and you also had the wee guys outside selling the dodgy knockoff merch. And I got this... <laughs> This, like, kind of... I don't want to call it a scarf, because you wouldn't have worn it. It was, like, it was shaped like a scarf, and it was lengthwise it was a scarf, but it was this kind of cheap material. It was almost more like a banner. And I bought one of those afterwards, and there's this picture of me back at the house after my first big pop concert wearing these big multicoloured stripy sweater shop jumpers, which were so cool in... This would have been 1995. <laughs> and holding this banner in the air with, like, my big plastic nerdy free on the nhs glasses and looking so pleased with myself so yeah that was my first concert okay i need to pull a little i need to go into a slight tangent because as i was looking up biker grove there is a (laughs) subsection on the wikipedia called the bands of biker grove and of course pj and junk duncan are there and michelle charles is there And the one that caught my attention was a band called Biker Groove with three O's, which was a girl band who then became Crush and did Jellyhead? What? As in instantly recognizable mid-90s song Jellyhead by Crush. I, yeah, that kind of passed me by because I think back in the day, you know, I only cared about, I only liked the pretty boys. (laughs) Because I'm going to look it up what movie it was in. It was in some movie that was like... Oh god, this this may be the most nineties album cover that I've seen in a while. Hang on, just type in Jellyhead Crush and you're gonna see the cover of I'm seeing the the YouTube Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, I definitely recognise them. What was her name? It was like was it maybe Donna something? Yeah, Did... it was um Donna Air. Donna Air. Yes. And then she became <laughs> a radio presenter. That's definitely a very nineties British reference. <laughs> So another topic that you mentioned that is very near and dear to my heart is the now nearly defunct chain music store. <laughs> so in your case, you mentioned FOB, which always reminds me of the pomade from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And Avalanche. I'm presuming these were you know, the kind of places where they would have the plastic cases that were as long as your forearm for each CD so that you couldn't fit them into your bag and... Actually, no, those were those were our no? indie stores. Ah. But we did, I mean, we, we have the chains over here as well, and we've had the same sort of decline of the chains too. Virgin Megastores was probably the biggest one, which 
sadly defunct and HMV is is like the big chain but I think the reason that I mentioned those we talked a little bit about how my music taste was kind of informed by having these songs that I heard in the car and then I kind of had to work backwards from those I almost joke that I didn't really start listening to music myself until I was like 18. And when you hear people who are music critics or whatever talk about music, it's always, oh, I grew up listening to all this classic stuff and I loved music when I was very young. I didn't. I was reading my books and listening to my bad TV pop groups. But when I started (laughs) going to university and started going into Glasgow, you know, going into the big city for the first time to go to university, and it was, this was the late 90s, this was before the big financial crash, this was when people were queuing up to give students credit cards and you got free gifts <laughs> when you opened credit cards and interest-free overdrafts. Oh, yes, like a T-shirt or, yeah. Oh, no, it was it was worse than that. It was like, it was things oh, like... Oh, better? It, yeah, it was things like food mixers and stuff they were giving you. I'm sure there was a DVD <laughs> player, one of the cards. When I was in Freshers Week at uni, you gave somebody a DVD player. That's where I got my first credit card as well, was in, it was called Frosh Week in Canada. But yeah, they were just lining up at the university and being like, well, yeah, I'll give you a hat and a T-shirt for the university if you sign up for this credit card with a $500 limit which was astronomical at the time yeah and you know you've got access to money for the first time and access to shops and you know I'd go in every time I got my pay from my supermarket job I would go into FOP which was an indie music store which eventually got bought out by HMV one of the big chains because it tried to go a little bit too big I think it started on a cart on Byers Road in the west end of Glasgow and turned into this sort of national chain and they just expanded a bit too fast but I would go into the shop and they sold classic albums for £5 so you'd just be like right I'm going to spend £50 this month I'm going to buy that and that and that and that (laughs) so I would buy R.E.M. and lots of female fronted stuff of that I missed like all the sort of Riot Girl bands, Hole and Sleater Kinney and Bikini Kill, who became the bands that mean the most to me now. You know, I was listening to them buying the big commercial album and working backwards. So, I mean, that was pretty much how I I spent my late teens, early 20s, was, you know, every month buying like 10 new albums and just devouring them and ending up with back in my mum's house, you know, like these lines and lines of alphabetized CDs and most of them are probably still there. I mean, I have lots now in my own house, but if I was to bring all the stuff that I left at my mum's as well, I just wouldn't have room for them. Yeah, you'd be building yourself these little hallways just built out of CDs, like that one episode of Black Books where it's, you know, turn right at the dead badger. Yes! (laughs) But, oh, I love music stores, and so I'm just back from holiday in Toronto, and they have a great Mm -hmm. one called Sonic Boom. You know, I always like to, whenever I go to a big city, seek out where the music store and it's always like the one remaining music store is and (laughs) I like to get stickers they didn't have any stickers in Sonic Boom so I couldn't stick it to my little Crosley record player I've got like a little collage of (laughs) stickers of the record shops of the world that I've visited that's one of my little hobbies and you always try to buy something to keep them in business almost yeah it's like going to an indie wrestling show you buy a print you buy a t-shirt because it's basically like giving a tip for the person who's just giving you a nice service I've literally just been handed a baby who is (laughs) sitting on my lap (laughs) I have a cat prowling in the room it's the same sort of idea well if you're ever in Sydney I'll have to take you through and take you to Repressed and Hum and all the other good indie record stores that are still live and kicking on record store day yes 
All right, so if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? I'm actually, I'm very easy to find on the internet, which I think is a testament to longevity. See if you stick last year's girl into Google, you will find me. That's the name of my blog. My social stuff is all in that name as well, and it's all really easy to find. Yes, and listeners, definitely go and check it out. Uh, Liz has got a fantastic archive of material going back, as she mentioned, lots and lots of years. So if you wanted to kind of do a deep dive, I'll link to one of the posts in the show notes where she talked about her dad's playlist of music, and you can definitely get stuck in and have a bit of a flashback yourself. Yeah. All right, Liz, well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been great fun. It has been. Thank you so much for having me. very much to Liz Furla for her time. When I asked Liz for signature cocktail flavors, she specifically said that she enjoys fruity rum-based drinks that in no way taste of alcohol. Or gin, she can do gin. What's that? Fruity rum-based beverages? That's right, we're heading into the Tiki Vault yet again. And so I present the Paisley Groove with three O's. In a shaker full of ice, combine one ounce of dark rum, half an ounce of 151 high proof rum, a quarter ounce of coffee liqueur, half an ounce of coconut syrup, half an ounce of fresh lime juice, and four ounces of orange juice. Shake vigorously until the outside of the vesicle frosts over. Strain into a cocktail glass and garnish with a cherry. So let us rest here like we used to in a line of late afternoon sun. Enjoy. is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or, as I say every week, you can pledge as much as you want. If you've been secretly waiting for me to ask you specifically, I'm asking you now. You. Yes, you, the one listening. You can pledge as much as you want. Patrons get early access to episodes, bonus cocktail recipes, and I would really just really appreciate it. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. It helps people find the show. You can also write a review, and I'll read them out. Won't that be nice? 
If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. Go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find a Spotify playlist containing every song I've ever used in the show, all the way back to episode one, including this one. Yes, that's right. It's Jellyhead by Crush. You'll find that if you go looking, the only version of the song you can find, legally at least, is the like really bumpin' dance mix version, which I think was used on Beverly Hills 90210, but this is actually the original. I got it through entirely scrupulous and legal means. This is actually a very good episode for music, too. There's a Thea Gilmore and Jonas Policewoman track at the very beginning. This girl is taking bets. That is a great song. I update the playlist as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure you subscribe to get that new music in your ears. Next week, I'm adding another arrow to my Smash Fiction host quiver, and Miles Schneiderman, co-host of the Smash Fiction podcast, will be coming to talk to me about newspaper comics. Join me, won't you? So what have you been up to today? Because it's like the end of the day then. It is the end of the day, but I have been up to precisely nothing because I was on holiday last week. I went to Canada and oh, really? I came back on Monday, one of these sort of horrible transatlantic overnight flights and then went straight back to work on Tuesday. So I have been <laughs> spending the whole week going, when is it the weekend? I just want to sleep for three days. So yeah, I have literally done nothing today and it's been wonderful. What did you do in Canada? Where'd you go? So we went to Toronto. My husband's actually a crime fiction writer. So there's this big conference that happens in North America once a year. It's called BoucherCon and he always goes to it and it's in a different city every year. And I basically tag along because it gives me an excuse to visit lots of really cool places. Like last year we went to New Orleans, the year before it was Raleigh in North Carolina and then obviously this year it was Toronto. So we had a couple of days together sort of exploring the city and then he had to work and I just explored the city on my own. Probably the coolest thing that I did was I went to uh, book launch, a new biography of Joni Mitchell. The setup that they did, you know, the author was there, and um, it's a guy called David Yaffe, I think is how you say his last name. He's written for Slate and the New York Times and all sorts of people. So they had a sort of Q&A thing with him and a Canadian music journalist. And then they had a Joni Mitchell tribute band. Well, it was like a, a duet and the author of the book actually played piano for a bit. And it just seemed like a really, like a nice Canadian culturally thing <laughs> to do, you know? Because obviously Joni got her start in Toronto. So it was mm-hmm. it just felt really appropriate buying this book and having this experience in the place where her career effectively began. Other than that, just kind of hung about the city, visited mm-hmm. museums, um, drank something called a unicorn latte, which was a slightly terrifying <laughs> combination of coffee and candy floss and a little cupcake on a stick out the top of it. It was amazing. <laughs> I don't think I could drink another one, but it was still good fun. I don't know if you can tell by my accent. I'm originally Canadian myself. Ah, see, I thought that doesn't sound very Australian, that accent, but I, I can't tell no. the difference between a Canadian and American accent, unfortunately. <laughs> no, and the thing is, I'm a particularly like bedeviling combination in that well I grew up in Canada until I was about 20 and lived all over so I lived on the west coast I lived in the east coast I lived in Alberta in northern Ontario and Quebec all these places so my accent isn't particularly regional Canadian 
And so it wasn't particularly fixed. And then I came to Australia and worked in call centers for about 10 years talking to Australians where I learned very quickly that I had to enunciate and be very clear with what I said or they wouldn't understand me from that. And then, of course, you know, 14 years of living around people who speak with accents, I've adapted some words without realizing it. So I have this weird hodgepodge of an accent to the point where I still sound Canadian to Australians, but to my family back home... I they have no idea. <laughs> My sister gives me hell for it. She's like, you're putting it on. I'm like, I'm really not. She's like, you don't sound like you're Canadian anymore. I'm like, yes, yes, I do. Literally, people tell me every day I sound like I'm foreign. I don't understand what you're missing here. Yeah, my husband has you know. the same problem because he's English. Um, he's from the Midlands of England, which has a very mm -hmm. distinct regional accent that living in Glasgow for 10 years has kind of ironed out of him. And I think I'm kind of the same in that I grew up and went to school that wasn't, it was all right, but it, it wasn't particularly fancy or anything. And then when I went to university, I did a law degree and I now my day job is with a big international law firm. And I feel like I've spent years kind of ironing out the rougher bits of my accent and probably having a lot of friends from the States and whatever else that I've met through blogging and things like that, you know, you don't want to come across sounding like you're an extra in train spotting or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite thing was my friend my sister-in-law was from Scotland and came to visit in Sydney and it was absolutely delightful to hear her say oh my days and I had never heard that expression and there was some particular spin she would put on it and it just sounded you know it was like the bubbles on top of lemonade was were fizzing up and so it was just oh my days and like, you're adorable can you live in my pocket please <laughs> God, this was years ago. I was listening to Grant Morrison, a comic book writer who's from Scotland. Yes. And like listening to it, and he's this little bald man, completely bald, like a swimmer. And he was talking and he said the expression, and I'm not even going to try to replicate it, but in his very Scottish way, he said, oh, you don't have to be a horse to be a vet. And that, the way he pronounced it, went down some cul-de-sac in the middle of that sentence. And I just went, oh my God, <laughs> I'm just, I just want to listen to you talk all day. It's lovely. I think we're very good at vowels. This is something that I've said to my husband before. Where I think vowel sounds in a Scottish accent sound like they're supposed to sound like, you know? The one thing that English people like to make Scottish people say is curly whirly, which is the name of a chocolate bar. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> oh, it's lovely. <laughs> On Doctor Who, they specifically named an alien race so that David Tennant would have a terrible time trying to keep his, I think it was an estuary accent they'd given him, and not lapsing into his normal Scottish accent when he'd have to say a Jadoon platoon on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> David Tennant is from the town I was born in, just outside really? Glasgow. Yes. He's from Paisley. Oh, Named after the trousers or the pattern, I expect. The pattern is the pattern is named after the town. <laughs> Paisley was a centre of weaving in the textile industries back in the seventeenth, eighteenth century, and we exported mm. thread and cloth to the world and the Paisley pattern as well. Well, there you go. So there's your random fact. <laughs> I've learned something. <laughs> two random facts if you count that David Tennant's from the same town as Yes. You. And I'm totally going to raise that within the episode because that's too good to miss. Yes. <laughs> let's get ready to rumble. Let's get ready, ready, let's get ready, ready, let's get ready to rumble. Watch us wreck the mic, watch us wreck the mic, watch us wreck the mic. Psych. Let's get
imagine that it's a white thing. Plane going over. <laughs> it's also gray and overcast, so it's amplifying everything. Oh, there you go. Emirates. You can actually see the tail of the plane as it goes past. Wow. There's a film called Garage Days, which was a disastrous second effort by Alex Broyas after Dark City, which is about young Australian musicians. And it had um, the girl from Looking for Alec Brandy, which is a very popular film, and Kit Gurry, who was later in Speed Racer and all these things. And at one point, there's a confession on, on the, they're sitting on a rooftop in Newtown, and they're like having dumplings or something, which is a very Newtown thing to do. There's a tearful confession of, of how bad a situation is. And a plane's gone over, so you see in subtitles exactly what he said, and then the plane goes by and she goes oh well let's go downstairs and she goes what, what, what uh, you didn't hear my tearful confession oh no 